What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Election 2024, the post-political roundtable. I'm Sean Sullivan, the campaign editor here at The Washington Post, and today we continue our discussion of the 2024 election with some of the top political and campaign journalists in our newsroom. First up today, Paul Kane, senior congressional correspondent and columnist here at The Post. PK, welcome to Election 2024. Great to have you here. Happy to be here, Sean. So, PK, I want to start with some of the biggest news on Capitol Hill last week, which uh, was this decision by Kevin McCarthy, who's going to be leaving Congress at the end of this year. He's not running for re-election. Um, you covered Kevin McCarthy for a long time. Can you sort of unpack this for us? What went into this decision? And what are the implications uh, on the Hill and, and beyond in the Republican Party right now? Yeah, well, it's a 17-year arc for a guy who arrived in, uh, in the Capitol um, kind of already knowing where everything everything worked because he had served as a top aide to Bill Thomas, who was a legendary member in the 80s, 90s, and early aughts who had chaired the Ways and Means Committee. McCarthy showed up when Republicans were in their just terrible, terrible state in 2007, 8, 9, 10, where they were deep, deep in the minority. And he was a guy who was already plotting how to sort of help the party rebound, help them find their way, get back into the majority. And he himself was already plotting how to become speaker. You know, he really always wanted this job. It took a lot of twists and turns and starts and false starts and, uh, and in and out of top leadership positions. But he got there finally in January after that marathon vote. It took 15 uh, public roll call votes in order for enough Republicans to side with him. And um, he proclaimed that as a as a strength. It showed that he was a guy who was always going to fight and he was never going to quit. That was his mantra. I won't quit. Well, nine months later, uh, a group of Republicans rebelled against him, uh, tossed him out as speaker using a really bizarre, uh, never before used procedure in order to expel a sitting House speaker, uh, sort of like a vote of no confidence. And uh, he has spent the last two months, McCarthy, basically just kind of walking around being quite bitter, always talking about the crazy eights, he calls them, the eight people who uh, kicked him out. And um, look, he doesn't serve on any committees. He, uh, he doesn't have that role anymore. He has a small office on the first floor of the Capitol. And he decided that it's really not all worth it to continue being a member in a place that kind of rejected him, that expelled him. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is deciding to stick around because she didn't really face that type of revolt, and, and she is sort of living her best life in, in the post-speakership world. McCarthy was kind of living his worst life, and it's decided it's time to go. Yeah, it's a great point about the contrast between Pelosi and McCarthy. And, and PK, you mentioned the small group of 
uh, Republicans who are basically responsible for ousting him in this pretty extraordinary way from the speakership. What does his sort of departure mean or say about this Republican conference at this point in time and the Republican Party more broadly? And I also want to ask you what, if any, implications you think there are for 2024 here and the election, given that McCarthy did have this sort of vaunted you know, fundraising apparatus that I think a lot of House Republicans relied on in, in prior cycles. Uh, let's just start with the basic numbers. When the uh, elections ended a year ago, there were 222 House Republicans, 213 Democrats. Um, there have been a series of deaths and resignations and, and one expulsion of George Santos. And so once McCarthy leaves, um, possibly you know, the end of this week or early next week, um, you'll be down to 220 Republicans and 213 Democrats. So on any given vote, the new speaker, Mike Johnson, can only afford to lose uh, two people from his side. Oh, let's do the math again. 220, 213. Uh, he can afford to lose three. I got it wrong. I got it wrong. So he can afford to lose three and pass by one vote a partisan bill. Um, you know, but now there's a Santos uh, special election coming up, and Democrats could win that. And if they win that because they're the old incumbent is a Democrat, and he's running again, Tom Swazi. Now you're at 222 14, and uh, a tie vote is essentially a failed vote. So Speaker Johnson would only have two votes there. All of this happens as McCarthy, who has been the sort of top re recruiter, he's been a big time fundraiser for many years, especially the past five as the uh, Republican leader and speaker. Um, he won't be there. He'll, he'll, he'll not be out there raising money. Mike Johnson was really sort of a backbencher, pulled from almost nowhere, very, 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 very junior leadership position. Uh, used to raise about a million dollars every two years for his own reelections. And that's the sort of stuff that Kevin McCarthy was uh, raising once a week in, uh, in an election season. So uh, he has to really step up his game. Now, the ultimate thing with House Republicans right now is that they rely heavily on their super PAC, which is funded by about 15 or 20 mega rich conservative families, uh, people worth nine figures, billionaires and such. Those people are still most likely going to be in the game and they are still they are real ideologues. They are sharp conservatives. So they will probably continue to write checks that will help fund the campaigns at the very end. Now, what will really be a test for Republicans is raising money for the individual candidates and how they do in those campaigns and how they're able to raise money. And McCarthy used to be quite helpful at that with his connections to sort of downtown DC, the, the lobbying firms, trade associations, et cetera. They're called hard dollars, those limited amounts that candidates can raise into their directly into their campaigns. They're the most precious dollars. And um, Democrats have done much, much better than Republicans in the last five years or so at those particular type of fundraising dollars. And now without McCarthy, it could be an even bigger edge for Democrats. That's really fascinating, something to watch next year. Uh, PK, you had this great story over the weekend that I got to bring up about Liz Cheney, uh, who is another fascinating figure in politics right now, one of the most outspoken critics of Donald Trump and the Republican Party. So what is Liz Cheney up to in 2024? What is she trying to do? Um, you know, she helped 
she essentially gave up a career that seemed to be on the rise um, about three years ago after the Capitol attack and, you know, made her her mantra, her focus was on going after Trump, who she believed, you know, had completely subjugated democracy and an attempt to overthrow a, a legitimate election that Joe Biden clearly won. Um, and that made her persona non grata among House Republicans. She had already risen up to the number three leadership position just under McCarthy and Steve Scalise. And then they kicked her out a few months later. And uh, then she lost her primary in August of 2022. So she's freed from the sort of the bonds of, of Congress. And um, a lot of people have been wondering, is she going to run for president? Is she going to she stoked some uh, a lot of uh, interest by saying she might run a third party contest. She's not really happy where Biden Democrats are right now. But deep down, the one thing she's really committed to is campaigning against House Republicans, her own her own former caucus, where she uh, was a member for six years. She doesn't believe that they will stand up to Trump. She believes that should, uh, you know, several different possibilities. One, Trump could contest the election if he loses again. And if House Republicans are in the majority, they won't be able to stand up to him if he truly lost. She also worries that there's a chance that one of these third party candidates that are already out there might win a state, might deny Trump and Biden 269, 270 electoral votes. That's the bare minimum to, to win. And in that case, the election goes to the House of Representatives and they have to decide who becomes president. And each state gets to cast one vote in which all of their delegation members vote as one. And if you have a majority of Democrats in a state like California, an overwhelming Democratic state, it only counts as one vote. Wyoming, where Liz Cheney uh, represented for six years, counts as one vote, even though they have one member. So she's very concerned about that makeup and that dynamic, and she wants to sort of target quite a few races in which the state delegations might also be tipped as, long to, as a way to sort of deny Trump a path back to power in that way, that fashion. That's really interesting. Last thing I want to ask you, PK, uh, I've got about a minute left here, is about th this talk on Capitol Hill that, that uh, House Republicans have, that some House Republicans have been engaged in about opening an impeachment inquiry against the current president, President Biden. Where does that stand? What is their basis for this? And, and where do you see that going here in the final weeks of the year? Sure. Um, later this week, possibly as their, their final legislative action of, the, of this year, this calendar year, House Republicans are going to put a plan to put a vote on the floor to formally launch an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. This is all focused on um, what have all been well-written, well-documented stories about Hunter Biden and his work uh, on behalf of Ukrainian uh, interests and Chinese interests back when Joe Biden was the vice president and his post-vice presidency career. Um, we have written many, many, many stories about this at the Washington Post. It was uh, both queasy and ethical forms, um, yet also uh, quite familiar in Washington form of how uh, people try to trade on influence. Um, uh, Hunter Biden was doing all of this um, while he was also going through serious addiction battles and was burning through lots of money. Republicans have been trying to figure out whether or not there was any 
benefit, personal benefit that went from uh, from Hunter Biden to Joe Biden. So far, there's no real documentation of all of that. Last week, they put up a, a, a documented emails that showed something like $1,300, but it was to pay the father back for loaning money to help him buy a very expensive uh, Jeep-like car. Um, anyway, they're going to make this vote, and it will almost certainly pass, because at this point, uh, they feel the White House is kind of blocking them, and they're going to need to go to court in order to try and force the White House to compel more testimony. And there is this long-running theory of the case uh, that if you have a formal inquiry and there is a House vote, that the courts will give it a higher weight, and they might side with the House in these votes. That's what they're saying they're going to do. We'll see how long this uh, uh, this process lasts. There's a decent chance that they could try to move toward impeachment early next year and really go go around the whole court process anyway. So uh, it's not going to really advance the ball too much, except it will put on record that they are voting to start an impeachment inquiry, which is a little bit of a dicey position for some of those Republicans sitting in districts that Joe Biden won. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how those vulnerable Republicans respond. Uh, lots to unpack uh, both on and off Capitol Hill. Uh, we'll have to leave it right there for now. But Paul Kane, senior congressional correspondent, thank you so much for joining us. Sure thing. Okay, I want to continue the program now with two of our campaign reporters, Colby Itkowitz and Merrill Cornfield, uh, to talk about 2024. Welcome to both of you to the program. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thanks, John. Uh, so, Colby, I want to start with you, and the big news uh, in the Republican presidential race today is this new Iowa poll, this very respected Des Moines Register poll um, that Republican strategists and observers have looked to for a long time as sort of a gauge of where the race stands in Iowa. What does this poll show us now with, I think, exactly five weeks to go until the caucuses? Not that I'm keeping track or counting down the days <laughs> myself, but, but what are we seeing, Colby, um, in this latest poll? I mean, it's stunning, Sean. Trump captures 51% um, of the vote in this poll, which is historic. That has never been true in a caucus poll in Iowa before. And it shows that he just has a commanding hold on the primary, uh, namely in Iowa, but across the country as well. DeSantis and Halley, who have been duking it out for second place, come a distant, I think it's 19% uh, for um, DeSantis and 16% for Halley. And so, um, Haley rather. I'm sorry, my niece's name is Hallie, and I do that all the time. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, Trump is the formidable frontrunner uh, in, going into the caucuses in five weeks, and it's going to be really, really difficult for anyone to catch up. And if he ends up securing 51% or higher of the vote in Iowa, it doesn't seem like there's a chance that anyone's going to be able to surpass him in later states. Yeah, you mentioned the other candidates uh, trying to catch him, and they've been debating. Uh, so I wanted to stick with that. Colby, you were at uh, the debate uh, last week that Donald Trump did not participate in. We did see yeah. Nikki Haley, one of the candidates in the mix that you mentioned, uh, become sort of a target of criticism from some of her rivals in that debate, including Ron DeSantis. What did you make of, of, of that and, and the fact that she is sort of emerging as, as a target for criticism uh, from her Republican rivals right now? Again, the primary outside of President Trump really feels like it's a race for second place, like I said, and it's really between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. 
so they came out fighting. They wanted to um, put Nikki on her heels and she, uh, you know, she really held her own. She's pretty unflappable. She had this great line in the beginning when Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramasamy were attacking her where she said, uh, I love all the attention, fellas. <laughs> so she was really calm. Um, there was a moment where Vivek holds up a sign, capital, big capital letters he'd scrawled, Nikki equals corrupt. Um, on a piece of paper when asked if she wanted to respond. She said that it didn't warrant or he didn't, it wasn't worth her time to respond to him. Uh, Ron DeSantis was also trying to get on in on the corrupt thing that she's owned by Wall Street donors. Her retort back to him was something to the effect of you're just jealous because those donors used to support you and now they support me. So she had a really, really strong debate uh, last week. She came out again, poised, confident, uh, knowledgeable on the issues. And she was able to withstand all of those attacks coming at her from all sides. That being said, it's hard to imagine that she could surpass uh, President Trump at this point. We might see we might see her ending up to be the second second place, the runner up. Maybe that puts her in line as a potential vice presidential uh, candidate on the ticket. But again, unlikely that she can uh, surpass Trump at this point. And Meryl, you covered the debate for us as well in, in real time, um, had some great insights. Uh, and so I, I wonder, uh, you know, when you look at these debates, there hasn't been a single one with Donald Trump. He's not given any indication that he wants to debate his rivals at all. Doesn't seem to have paid any price at all in the polls. Um, you've also been out around the country a lot. You've talked to a lot of Republican voters. What has the impact been of the leading uh, polling, the, you know, the, the clear polling leader skipping these debates, uh, both in this race and what what, do you, what what what's the impact been in the minds of, of Republican voters, do you think? A lot of voters I've talked to, especially in recent weeks, have kind of checked out um, if they were even checked in to uh, this race. And they've said that they weren't paying attention. I talked with a lot of voters um, during the debate. I was texting with voters and asking them, are they watching? And a lot of people were doing other things. Um, and, you know, we saw that in the audience viewership for this debate was lower than other ones. So I think in this case, um, a lot of uh, the Republican voters that I've talked to who have said it makes sense that Trump is not participating were unsurprised by it. And at this point, they see these debates as a race for second. Yeah, so Meryl, we talked about Donald Trump. We've talked about uh, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, who are obviously battling uh, for this sort of second place position in Iowa. And then there's this other candidate, Chris Christie, who was in the race, who was also at the debate, um, hasn't shown any signs that, that he's dropping out, even though some have uh, pressured him to do so, it appears. So when you look at Christie's presence in this race right now, what impact could he have, even as a candidate who's sort of polling in the single digits right now? What effect, if any, um, is he having on this race as we head into early 2024? Christie sees himself as this anti-Trump voice. Um, he wants to make sure that the other competitors are speaking up against Trump. Um, we saw him do that in the debate when DeSantis didn't ask, answer a question. He was asked about Trump. He said, wait, 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 you didn't answer that and kept going after DeSantis for not talking about um, would he support Trump? And that that's something that he is going to continue to do on the trail. We see him at his town hall events talking about how there needs to be that voice in the Republican Party, and he can be that. And that appeals to a never Trump Republican audience. Um, there are people who I've talked with in New Hampshire who really like him and really like how he's talking about Trump. Um, and they're also considering Nikki Haley as another option because they view her as 
and then a similar alternative in terms of policy. Interesting. Okay, Colby, so 35 days until the Iowa caucuses, we're moving into all Iowa all the time, kind of focus in this race. As you sort of size up this field uh, in the big picture, what should we be watching for in Iowa in this final stretch run uh, from some of these candidates that we've discussed? Yeah, I'll be really interested to see how much time uh, President Trump spends in Iowa. Um, you know, he hasn't participated in any of the debates. He hasn't really been barnstorming the state the way the other candidates have, and yet he's captured 51% of the vote. And so in some ways, he doesn't really need to be out there uh, on the ground like these other people do, the the foot soldiers, the grassroots efforts. Um, he just needs to be, you know, in the news, in the headlines, and he continues to do that. He says things as he always has that, you know, kind of elicit response from other people, um, and it keeps the focus on him. The more that there are um, indictments and charges, and and focusing on his behavior, it seems like the more Republican voters kind of want to rally behind him and support him and feel like he's getting um, that he's getting targeted. And so, yeah, I'll be paying attention to Trump and his visits in Iowa, and then also how uh, DeSantis and Nikki Haley, um, you know, continue to make the argument that they are the better choice than Trump, both better than each other and better than him. Uh, it's a hard sell in Iowa with all the evangelical voters. It's a really conservative state, um, and that's where Trump really shines. Yeah, and let's drill down on that for a second. You mentioned DeSantis, Colby. Uh, I mean, here's a campaign that has put a lot of its resources into Iowa, um, has said publicly that it wants to do well in Iowa, but as you pointed out earlier, that poll uh, that came out today shows him well behind Donald Trump. We've seen some DeSantis allies try to compare this effort with you know, some of the past caucus winners, Mike Huckabee, Ted Cruz, but uh, he seems to be struggling and continuing to struggle right now. So you know, what, if anything, could he do to sort of turn this around in these final weeks here in, 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 in this stretch run to Iowa? Well, it's interesting, Sean, that you mentioned Mike Huckabee and Ted Cruz. Um, Rick Santorum also won Iowa in 2012. None of those men became president. So winning Iowa doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna go on to the White House. That being said, it does not look like Ron DeSantis has been able to gain the ground that people thought he was going to when this primary got started. He was the guy to beat. He was the guy to, you know, the next Donald Trump um, people were really excited about the things that he did in Florida during COVID, and he has not been able to translate that on a national stage. And you talk to some political consultants, and they just say he maybe wasn't ready for prime time. He wasn't ready for the scrutiny and the focus that comes with running a national campaign. And no matter how hard his his allies and his people have tried, again, he you know endorsements for him, nothing has seemed to really allow him to gain the traction needed uh, to surpass Donald Trump. Yeah, and the expectations were really high for him, um, as I remember yeah. earlier this year. So I want to turn over, Merrill, to the Democratic primary right now, which is also ongoing. And you had a great story uh, over the weekend about what's going on there. Dean Phillips, who is this long shot challenger against Joe Biden, the president, uh, has been stepping up some of his attacks and stepping them up in a way that seems to have uh, angered some Biden allies who see what he's doing is dangerous. So. I wonder if you could unpack all of that for us and what you found in your reporting. You know, who is Dean Phillips? What is he doing? And, and why is it that we're seeing such a sharp reaction to some of these attacks from Biden's allies? Yeah, Dean Phillips, who um, is well known in Minneapolis, where his suburban congressional district is, but lesser known around the country, um, has made a name for himself in recent weeks for 
challenging Biden and saying that there should be this alternative in the the, the Democratic Party. Um, he is not someone who has had as long of a career in the Democratic politics as Joe Biden has. You know, he jokes like the other guy is 50 years ahead of me because he won his district in 2018. Before that, he was a businessman. Um, he's well known for running Talenti Gelato and his family having a, a successful distillery business. And he um, is now trying to, um, you know, better understand the New Hampshire uh primary uh, trail. And he is um, using this one specific point to try to rally the Democratic base there, saying that you have been disenfranchised by Joe Biden. Um, he is not on the ballot here. Um, Phillips alleges that the DNC is not going to seat New Hampshire delegates, which remains to be seen. Um, and he said, because of that, your vote will not be counted. So uh, this is someone who is threatening democracy. Um, and what we heard from Democrats nationally was um, they were frustrated with Phillips using that language. That's language that Trump has used against Biden. Um, and they compared him to Trump for that reason. And what I heard when I talked with New Hampshire voters is they don't fully understand the argument that Phillips is trying to make. Um, and they also said that they don't feel like Biden is this threat to democracy in the same way that Trump is, and that we should be focusing on someone who's saying that he's going to be a dictator on day one. Um, and that the voters generally, while they are frustrated with how the New Hampshire first in the nation primary has been handled, something that they prided a long time, but now um, South Carolina is ahead of them that they feel like um, that, 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 that this point that Phillips is drilling into um, doesn't distinguish him enough from Biden. So Meryl, we have President Biden on one side with a commanding lead in the Democratic primary. We have Donald Trump, the former president, on the other side, which, as we've discussed, has a commanding lead in the Republican primary. You've been out talking to voters a lot all around the country. Is there an appetite among them for a candidate who is not named Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Is there an appetite for some sort of alternative, some third party candidate, or, or are you not really sensing that right now? You sense that when I ask people, who are you going to vote for if it's a Biden-Trump matchup again? Like what I immediately hear is a long sigh um, because people don't wanna have to answer that question again. Um, and what Phillips points to is polling shows that um, in a head-to-head, -head, uh, Trump wins against Biden in battleground states. But if there's this generic Democrat, then um, people like that and are more likely to vote for the generic Democrat. But the problem with that is he isn't a generic Democrat in the sense that he is an actual politician who is running and has a background and can say things. And then as soon as he is a n name in a known quantity, he becomes less generic and um, potentially less likely for people to support. It remains to be seen. Um, but um, it, what we uh, know right now about um, New Hampshire is uh, Biden is leading even as a write-in candidate um, and is likely to be the Democratic nominee if that continues. Um, so that that's where Phillips sees an opening. Interesting. And Colby, we've talked on this program a lot about the uh, legal problems that President, former President Trump is confronting, four criminal indictments, uh, 91 charges spanning those indictments, a series of trials potentially going into next year and potentially beyond. But on the other side, you have a lot of Republicans pointing to some of the potential legal entanglements of 
President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, um, and they are pointing to this a lot in, in, in their efforts to raise this as an issue in the campaign. So how do you see Hunter Biden sort of factoring in to the 2024 election and 2024 campaign? Yeah. You know, it puts a real personal and political strain on President Biden. This is his son, who he loves dearly, doesn't want to see him getting in trouble, doesn't want to see him in the spotlight for, for these negative reasons. And so you have to imagine that that weighs on the president heavily. Um, but it also, there's a political cost because the Democrats want to be able to point to Donald Trump and all of his legal entanglements and say that he's unpresidential. But the Republicans have this ability now, right, right or wrong, uh, to try and equate uh, Trump's legal troubles with uh, Biden's family issues, with Hunter's legal problems. And so there seems to be, you know, kind of takes the wind out of the Democrats a little bit, their ability to focus on um, Trump's crimes. You know, what Democrats will say in response to that is that, you know, one major thing difference that we're talking about the candidate himself, President Trump, versus a family member of the candidate. Hunter Biden is not running for president. He is the son of the president. And so far, there's been nothing proven that the president has done anything wrong, that he has been involved in any of the, the legal issues that Hunter finds himself in. So the narrative isn't great. The strain on the president isn't great for him. Um, but Democrats are just going to keep homing in on the fact that this is not you cannot equate these two things. You cannot equate 91 uh, charges against the former president and all of his various indictments and legal entanglements with what the president, the current president's son is going through. Okay, we've talked a lot about the candidates. Real quick, I want to ask both of you, starting with you, Merrill, uh, about issues. When you talk to voters, both Democrats and Republicans out across the country, what are the issues that matter, either policy issues or political issues, that are standing out uh, in some of the interviews that you're doing? What, what, what's on the minds of America right now um, as we head into this election year? Talked with Republican voters in Iowa and specifically asked what are the top issues that they're voting on. And I hear a lot immigration. Uh, they see these images um, on conservative news sites about um, people crossing the border and they feel threatened by that. Um, another big issue I hear is economy. They feel like the the inf growing inflation in their pocketbook. Um, I was standing outside grocery stores in Minneapolis last week, and that was something I heard again and again as people pointed to their groceries and pointed out, well, this is what I used to pay for this, and this is now what I pay for it, and I can really feel a difference. Um, and um, something I hear a lot from Democrats is also that that concern about inflation, that they feel the difference. Um, and they they will say, you know, I, I know that the economy is better, but I don't see it firsthand. My real wages are not um, where I want them to be. Um, and um, another thing I hear a lot from them is concern about Trump and democracy um, and the future of a potential general and, and how Biden might handle facing off against Trump again. Colby, I'll give you the last word on this. What are you hearing out there? Yeah, I agree with economy is always at the top of voters' minds. You know, some voters are frustrated that the Biden White House continues to point to how well the economy is bouncing back. But like Merrill said, people don't feel that. They don't feel that in their own pocketbooks. They don't feel that in their paychecks. When they go grocery shopping, prices still feel high. And they, you know, President Trump is really trying to use that uh, to say, listen, things were better economically when I was president. So you should put me back in the White House and things will be better again. President Biden is trying to say, listen, he's the one that messed everything up. And, you know, and the reason why we have these problems, uh, 
you know, at the end of his presidential term. So you're going to hear them, you know, really try to make the case for why the other is bad for the economy. And I think at the end of the day, voters are going to be voting based on how they feel the economy is doing personally for them. Lots to watch uh, in the year ahead. Unfortunately, we are out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Colby Akwitz, Meryl Cornfield, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.